Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 14 of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core. Chapter 14. The Garden of Eden. With no heavenly guide, it is little wonder that I became confused and lost in the labyrinthine maze of those mighty hills. What in reality I did was to pass entirely through them and come out above the valley upon the farther side. I know that I wandered for a long time, until tired and hungry I came upon a small cave in the face of the limestone formation which had taken the place of the granite farther back. The cave which took my fancy lay halfway up the precipitous side of a lofty cliff. The way to it was such that I knew no extremely formidable beast could frequent it, nor was it large enough to make a comfortable habitat for any but the smaller mammals or reptiles. Yet it was with the utmost caution that I crawled within its dark interior. Here I found a rather large chamber, lighted by a narrow cleft in the rock above, which let the sunlight filter in in sufficient quantities partially to dispel the utter darkness which I had expected. The cave was entirely empty, nor were there any signs of its having been recently occupied. The opening was comparatively small, so that after considerable effort I was able to lug up a boulder from the valley below which entirely blocked it. Then I returned again to the valley for an armful of grasses, and on this trip was fortunate enough to knock over an orthopy, the diminutive horse of Pellucidar, a little animal about the size of a fox terrier, which abounds in all parts of the inner world. Thus with food and bedding I returned to my lair, where, after a meal of raw meat, to which I had now become quite accustomed, I dragged the boulder before the entrance and curled myself upon a bed of grasses, a naked, primeval caveman as savagely primitive as my prehistoric progenitors. I awoke rested but hungry, and pushing the boulder aside crawled out upon the little rocky shelf which was my front porch. Before me spread a small but beautiful valley, through the center of which a clear and sparkling river wound its way down to an inland sea, the blue waters of which were just visible between two mountain ranges which embraced this little paradise. The sides of the opposite hills were green with verdure, for a great forest clothed them to the foot of the red and yellow and copper-green of the towering crags which formed their summit. The valley itself was carpeted with a luxuriant grass, while here and there patches of wildflowers made great splashes of vivid color against the prevailing green. Dotted over the face of the valley were little clusters of palm-like trees, three or four together as a rule. Beneath these stood antelope while others grazed in the open or wandered gracefully to a nearby ford to drink. There were several species of this beautiful animal, the most magnificent somewhat resembling the giant eland of Africa, except that their spiral horns form a complete curve backward over their ears and then forward again beneath them, ending in sharp and formidable points some two feet before the face and above the eyes.
In size they remind one of a purebred Hereford bull, yet they are very agile and fast. The broad yellow bands that stripe the dark roan of their coats made me take them for a zebra when I first saw them. All in all they are handsome animals, and added the finishing touch to the strange and lovely landscape that spread before my new home. I had determined to make my cave my headquarters, and with it as a base make a systematic exploration of the surrounding country in search of the land of Sari. First I devoured the remainder of the carcass of the orthopi I had killed before my last sleep. Then I hid the great secret in a deep niche at the back of the cave, rolled the boulder before my front door, and with bow, arrows, sword and shield scrambled down into the peaceful valley. The grazing herds moved to one side as I passed through them, the little orthopi evincing the greatest wariness and galloping to safest distances. All the animals stopped feeding as I approached, and after moving to what they considered a safe distance, stood contemplating me with serious eyes and up-cocked ears. Once one of the old bull antelopes of the striped species lowered his head and bellowed angrily, even after taking a few steps in my direction so that I thought he meant to charge. But after I had passed, he resumed feeding as though nothing had disturbed him. Near the lower end of the valley I passed a number of tapirs, and across the river saw a great sadoc, the enormous double-horned progenitor of the modern rhinoceros. At the valley's end the cliffs upon the left ran out into the sea, so that to pass around them, as I desired to do, it was necessary to scale them in search of a ledge along which I might continue my journey. Some fifty feet from the base I came upon a projection which formed a natural path along the face of the cliff, and this I followed out over the sea toward the cliff's end. Here the ledge inclined rapidly upward toward the top of the cliffs. The stratum which formed it evidently having been forced up at this steep angle when the mountains behind it were born. As I climbed carefully up the ascent, my attention suddenly was attracted aloft by the sound of strange hissing, and what resembled the flapping of wings. And at the first glance there broke upon my horrified vision the most frightful thing I had ever seen within Pellucidar. It was a giant dragon such as is pictured in the legends and fairy tales of earth folk. Its huge body must have measured forty feet in length while the bat-like wings that supported it in mid-air had a spread of fully thirty. Its gaping jaws were armed with long, sharp teeth, and its claw equipped with horrible talons. The hissing noise which had first attracted my attention was issuing from its throat, and seemed to be directed at something beyond and below me which I could not see. The ledge upon which I stood terminated abruptly a few paces farther on, and as I reached the end I saw the cause of the reptile's agitation. In some time in past ages an earthquake had produced a fault at this point, so that beyond the spot where I stood the strata had slipped down a matter of twenty feet. The result was that the continuation of my ledge lay twenty feet below me, where it ended as abruptly as did the end upon which I stood. And here, evidently halted in flight by this insurmountable break in the ledge, stood the object of the creature's attack, a girl cowering upon the narrow platform, her face buried in her arms as though to shut out the sight of the frightful death which hovered just above her. The dragon was circling lower, and seemed about to dart in upon its prey. 
There was no time to be lost, scarce an instant in which to weigh the possible chances that I had against the awfully armed creature. But the sight of that frightened girl below me called out to all that was best in me, and the instinct for protection of the other sex, which nearly must have equaled the instinct of self-preservation in primeval man, drew me to the girl's side like an irresistible magnet. Almost thoughtless of the consequences, I leapt from the edge of the ledge upon which I stood for the tiny shelf twenty feet below. At the same instant the dragon darted in toward the girl, but my sudden advent upon the scene must have startled him for he veered to one side, and then rose above us once more. The noise I made as I landed beside her convinced the girl that the end had come, for she thought I was the dragon. But finally, when no cruel fangs closed upon her, she raised her eyes in astonishment. As they fell upon me, the expression that came into them would be difficult to describe, but her feelings could scarcely have been one whit more complicated than my own, for the wide eyes that looked into mine were those of Dian the Beautiful. Dian! I cried. Dian! Thank God that I came in time! You? she whispered and then she hid her face again, nor could I tell whether she were glad or angry that I had come. Once more the dragon was sweeping toward us, and so rapidly that I had no time to unsling my bow. All that I could do was to snatch up a rock and hurl it at the thing's hideous face. Again my aim was true, and with a hiss of pain and rage the reptile wheeled once more and soared away. Quickly I fitted an arrow now that I might be ready at the next attack, and as I did so I looked down at the girl, so that I surprised her in a surreptitious glance which she was stealing at me. But immediately she again covered her face with her hands. "'Look at me, Dean," I pleaded. "'Are you not glad to see me?' She looked straight into my eyes. "'I hate you,' she said and then, as I was about to beg for a fair hearing, she pointed over my shoulder. "'The Thipdar comes,' she said, and I turned again to meet the reptile. So this was a Thipdar. I might have known it. The cruel bloodhound of the Mahars, the long-extinct pterodactyl of the outer world. But this time I met it with a weapon it never had faced before. I had selected my longest arrow, and with all my strength had bent the bow until the very tip of the shaft rested upon the thumb of my left hand, and then, as the great creature darted toward us, I let it drive straight for that tough breast. Hissing like the escape valve of a steam engine, the mighty creature fell turning and twisting into the sea below, my arrow buried completely in its carcass. I turned toward the girl. She was looking past me. It was evident that she had seen the Thipdar die. Dean, I said, won't you tell me that you are not sorry that I have found you? I hate you, was her only reply. But I imagined that there was less vehemence in it than before, yet it might have been but my imagination. Why do you hate me, Dean? I asked, but she did not answer me. What are you doing here? I asked, and what has happened to you since Huja freed you from the Sagoths? At first I thought that she was going to ignore me entirely, but finally she thought better of it. I was again running away from Jubal the Ugly One, she said. After I escaped from the Sagoths I made my way alone back to my own land, 
but on account of Jubal I did not dare enter the villages or let any of my friends know that I had returned for fear that Jubal might find out. By watching for a long time I found that my brother had not yet returned, and so I continued to live in a cave beside a valley which my race seldom frequents, awaiting the time that he should come back and free me from Jubal. But at last one of Jubal's hunters saw me as I was creeping toward my father's cave to see if my brother had yet returned, and he gave the alarm and Jubal set out after me. He has been pursuing me across many lands. He cannot be far behind me now. When he comes he will kill you and carry me back to his cave. He is a terrible man. I have gone as far as I can go, and there is no escape." and she looked hopelessly up at the continuation of the ledge twenty feet above us. "'But he shall not have me!' she suddenly cried with great vehemence. "'The sea is there,' she pointed over the edge of the cliff, "'and the sea shall have me rather than Jubal.' "'But I have you now, Dian,' I cried, "'nor shall Jubal nor any other have you, for you are mine!' And I seized her hand nor did I lift it above her head and let it fall in token of release. She had risen to her feet and was looking straight into my eyes with level gaze. "'I do not believe you,' she said, "'for if you meant it you would have done this when the others were present to witness it. Then I should truly have been your mate. Now there is no one to see you do it, for you know that without witnesses your act does not bind you to me.' And she withdrew her hand from mine and turned away. I tried to convince her that I was sincere, but she simply couldn't forget the humiliation that I had put upon her on that other occasion. "'If you meant all that you say, you will have ample chance to prove it,' she said. "'If Jubal does not catch you and kill you, I am in your power, and the treatment you accord me will be the best proof of your intentions toward me. I am not your mate, and again I tell you that I hate you and that I should be glad if I never saw you again." Dean certainly was candid. There was no gainsaying that. In fact, I found candor and directness to be quite a marked characteristic of the cavemen of Pellucidar. Finally, I suggested that we make some attempt to gain my cave, where we might escape the searching for Jubal, for I am free to admit that I had no considerable desire to meet the formidable and ferocious creature of whose mighty prowess Dean had told me when I first met her. He it was who, armed with a puny knife, had met and killed a cave-bear in a hand-to-hand -hand struggle. It was Jubal who could cast his spear entirely through the armed carcass of the Sadok at fifty paces. It was he who had crushed the skull of a charging Dirith with a single blow of his war-club. No, I was not pining to meet the ugly one and it was quite certain that I should not go out and hunt for him. But the matter was taken out of my hands very quickly, as is often the way, and I did meet Jubal the Ugly One face to face. This is how it happened. I led Dean back along the ledge the way she had come, searching for a path that would lead us to the top of the cliff, for I knew that we could then cross over to the edge of my own little valley, where I felt certain we should find a means of ingress from the cliff-top. As we proceeded along the ledge I gave Dean minute directions for finding my cave against the chance of something happening to me. 
I knew that she would be quite safely hidden away from pursuit once she gained the shelter of my lair, and the valley would afford her ample means of sustenance. Also, I was very much piqued by her treatment of me. My heart was sad and heavy, and I wanted to make her feel badly by suggesting that something terrible might happen to me, that I might, in fact, be killed. But it didn't work worth a cent, at least as far as I could perceive. Dean simply shrugged those magnificent shoulders of hers and murmured something to the effect that one was not rid of trouble so easily as that. For a while I kept still. I was utterly squelched. And to think that I had twice protected her from attack, the last time risking my life to save hers. It was incredible that even a daughter of the Stone Age could be so ungrateful, so heartless but maybe her heart partook of the qualities of her epoch. Presently we found a rift in the cliff which had been widened and extended by the action of the water draining through it from the plateau above. It gave us a rather rough climb to the summit, but finally we stood upon the level mesa which stretched back for several miles to the mountain range. Behind us lay the broad inland sea, curving upward in the horizonless distance to merge into the blue of the sky so that for all the world it looked as though the sea leapt back to arch completely over us and disappear beyond the distant mountains at our backs, the weird and uncanny aspect of the seascapes of Pellucidar balked description. At our right lay a dense forest, but to the left the country was open and clear to the plateau's farther verge. It was in this direction that our way led, and we had turned to resume our journey when Dean touched my arm. I turned to her, thinking, that she was about to make peace overtures, but I was mistaken. Jubal, she said, and nodded toward the forest. I looked, and there, emerging from the dense wood, came a perfect wail of a man. He must have been seven feet tall and proportioned accordingly. He was still too far off to distinguish his features. Run, I said to Dean. I can engage him until you get a good start. Maybe I can hold him until you have gotten entirely away. And then, without a backward glance, I advanced to meet the ugly one. I had hoped that Dean would have a kind word to say to me before she went, for she must have known that I was going to my death for her sake. But she never even so much as bid me good-bye, and it was with a heavy heart that I strode through the flower-bespangled grass to my doom. When I had come close enough to Jubal to distinguish his features, I understood how it was that he had earned the sobriquet of Ugly One. Apparently some fearful beast had ripped away one entire side of his face. The eye was gone, the nose, and all the flesh, so that his jaws and all his teeth were exposed and grinning through the horrible scar. Formerly he may have been as good to look upon as the others of his handsome race and it may be that the terrible result of this encounter had tended to sour an already strong and brutal character. However this may be, it is quite certain that he was not a pretty sight, and now that his features, or what remained of them, were distorted in rage at the sight of Dean with another male, he was indeed most terrible to see, and much more terrible to meet. He had broken into a run now, and as he advanced he raised his mighty spear, while I halted and, fitting an arrow to my bow, took as steady aim as I could. I was somewhat longer than usual, 
for I must confess that the sight of this awful man had wrought upon my nerves to such an extent that my knees were anything but steady. What chance had I against this mighty warrior, for whom even the fiercest cave-bear had no terrors? Could I hope to best one who slaughtered the Sadok and Deereth single-handed? I shuddered, but in fairness to myself my fear was more for Diem than for my own fate. And then the great brute launched his massive stone-tipped spear, and I raised my shield to break the force of its terrific velocity. The impact hurled me to my knees, but the shield had deflected the missile and I was unscathed. Jubal was rushing upon me now with the only remaining weapon that he carried, a murderous-looking knife. He was too close for a careful bow-shot, but I let drive at him as he came without taking aim. My arrow pierced the fleshy part of his thigh, inflicting a painful but not disabling wound, and then he was upon me. My agility saved me for the instant. I ducked beneath his raised arm, and when he wheeled to come at me again he found a sword's point in his face, and a moment later he felt an inch or two of it in the muscles of his knife-arm, so that thereafter he went more warily. It was a duel of strategy now, the great hairy man maneuvering to get inside my guard where he could bring those giant thews to play, while my wits were directed to the task of keeping him at arm's length. Thrice he rushed me, and thrice I caught his knife-blow upon my shield. Each time my sword found his body, once penetrating to his lung. He was covered with blood by this time, and the internal hemorrhage induced paroxysms of coughing that brought the red stream through the hideous mouth and nose, covering his face and breast with bloody froth. He was a most unlovely spectacle, but he was far from dead. As the duel continued I began to gain confidence, for, to be perfectly candid, I had not expected to survive the first rush of that monstrous engine of ungoverned rage and hatred. And I think that Jubal, from utter contempt of me, began to change to a feeling of respect, and then, in his primitive mind, there evidently loomed the thought that perhaps at last he had met his master, and was facing his end. At any rate, it is only upon this hypothesis that I can account for his next act, which was in the nature of a last resort, a sort of forlorn hope, which could only have been born of the belief that if he did not kill me quickly I should kill him. It happened on the occasion of his fourth charge, when, instead of striking at me with his knife, he dropped that weapon, and seizing my sword-blade in both his hands, wrenched the weapon from my grasp as easily as from a babe. Flinging it far to one side, he stood motionless for just an instant, glaring into my face with such a horrid leer of malignant triumph as to almost unnerve me. Then he sprang for me with his bare hands. But it was Jubal's day to learn new methods of warfare. For the first time he had seen a bow and arrows. Never before that duel had he beheld a sword and now he learned what a man who knows may do with his bare fists. As he came for me, like a great bear, I ducked again beneath his outstretched arm, and as I came up, planted as clean a blow upon his jaw as ever you have seen. Down went that great mountain of flesh sprawling upon the ground. He was so surprised and dazed that he lay there for several seconds before he made any attempt to rise and I stood over him with another dose ready when he should gain his knees. Up he came at last, 
almost roaring in his rage and mortification. But he didn't stay up. I let him have a left fair on the point of the jaw that sent him tumbling over his back. By this time I think Jubal had gone mad with hate, for no sane man would have come back for more as many times as he did. Time after time I bowled him over as fast as he could stagger up, until toward the last he lay longer on the ground between blows, and each time came up weaker than before. He was bleeding very profusely now from the wound in his lungs, and presently a terrific blow over his heart sent him reeling heavily to the ground, where he lay very still, and somehow I knew at once that Jubal the Ugly One would never get up again. But even as I looked upon that massive body lying there so grim and terrible in death, I could not believe that I, single-handed, had bested this slayer of fearful beasts, this gigantic ogre of the Stone Age. Picking up my sword I leaned upon it, looking down on the dead body of my foeman, and as I thought of the battle I had just fought and won, a great idea was born in my brain the outcome of this and the suggestion that Perry had made within the city of Futra. If skill and science could render a comparative pygmy the master of this mighty brute, what could not the brute's fellows accomplish with the same skill and science? Why, all Pellucidar would be at their feet, and I would be their king, and Dian their queen. Dian, a little wave of doubt swept over me. It was quite within the possibilities of Dian to look down upon me even were I a king. She was quite the most superior person I had ever met, with the most convincing way of letting you know that she was superior. Well, I could go to the cave and tell her that I had killed Jubal, and then she might feel more kindly toward me, since I had freed her of her tormentor. I hoped that she had found the cave easily. It would be terrible had I lost her again. And I turned to gather up my shield and bow to hurry after her, when, to my astonishment, I found her standing not ten paces behind me. "'Girl!' I cried. "'What are you doing here? I thought that you had gone to the cave as I told you to.' Up went her head, and the look that she gave me took all the majesty out of me, and left me feeling more like the palace janitor, if palaces have janitors. "'As you told me to,' she cried, stamping her little foot, "'I do as I please.' I am the daughter of a king, and furthermore, I hate you." I was dumbfounded. This was my thanks for saving her from Jubal. I turned and looked at the corpse. "'May be that I saved you from a worse fate, old man,' I said, but I guess it was lost on Dian, for she never seemed to notice it at all. "'Let us go to my cave,' I said. I am tired and hungry. She followed along a pace behind me, neither of us speaking. I was too angry, and she evidently didn't care to converse with the lower orders. I was mad all the way through, as I had certainly felt that at least a word of thanks should have rewarded me, for I knew that even by her own standards I must have done a very wonderful thing to have killed the redoubtable Jubal in a hand-to-hand -hand encounter. We had no difficulty in finding my lair and then I went down into the valley and bowled over a small antelope, which I dragged up the steep ascent to the ledge before the door. Here we ate in silence. Occasionally I glanced at her, thinking that the sight of her tearing at raw flesh with her hands and teeth like some wild animal would cause a revulsion of my sentiments toward her. 
but to my surprise I found that she ate quite as daintily as the most civilized woman of my acquaintance, and finally I found myself gazing in foolish rapture at the beauties of her strong, white teeth. Such is love. After our repast we went down to the river together and bathed our hands and faces, and then, after drinking our fill, went back to the cave. Without a word I crawled into the farthest corner, and curling up was soon asleep. When I awoke I found Dean sitting in the doorway looking out across the valley. As I came out she moved to one side to let me pass, but she had no word for me. I wanted to hate her, but couldn't. Every time I looked at her something came up in my throat so that I nearly choked. I had never been in love before, but I did not need any aid in diagnosing my case. I certainly had it, and had it bad. God, how I love that beautiful, disdainful, tantalizing, prehistoric girl! After we had eaten again I asked Dean if she intended returning to her tribe now that Jubal was dead, but she shook her head sadly and said that she did not dare, for there was still Jubal's brother to be considered his oldest brother. "'What has he to do with it?' I asked. "'Does he too want you, or has the option on you become a family heirloom to be passed on down from generation to generation?' She was not quite sure as to what I meant. "'It is probable,' she said, "'that they all will want revenge for the death of Jubal. There are seven of them, seven terrible men.' Someone may have to kill them all, if I am to return to my people." It began to look as though I had assumed a contract much too large for me—about seven sizes, in fact. "'Had Jubal any cousins?' I asked. It was just as well to know the worst at once. "'Yes,' replied Dean, "'but they don't count. They all have mates. Jubal's brothers have no mates, because Jubal could get none for himself. He was so ugly that women ran away from him. Some have even thrown themselves from the cliffs of Amoz into the Daryl Az rather than mate with the ugly one." "'But what had that to do with his brothers?' I asked. "'I forget that you are not of Pellucidar,' said Dean, with a look of pity mixed with contempt, and the contempt seemed to be laid on a little thicker than the circumstance warranted, as though to make quite certain that I shouldn't overlook it. You see," she continued, a younger brother may not take a mate until all his older brothers have done so, unless the older brother waives his prerogative, which Jubal would not do, knowing that as long as he kept them single they would be all the keener in aiding him to secure a mate. Noticing that Dean was becoming more communicative, I began to entertain hopes that she might be warming up toward me a bit although upon what slender thread I hung my hopes I soon discovered. "'As you dare not return to Amaz,' I ventured, "'what is to become of you, since you cannot be happy here with me, hating me as you do?' "'I shall have to put up with you,' she replied coldly, "'until you see fit to go elsewhere and leave me in peace. Then I shall get along very well alone.' I looked at her in utter amazement. It seemed incredible that even a prehistoric woman could be so cold and heartless and ungrateful. Then I arose. "'I shall leave you now,' I said haughtily. "'I have had quite enough of your ingratitude and your insults.' And then I turned and strode majestically down toward the valley. 
I had taken a hundred steps in absolute silence, and then Dion spoke. "'I hate you!' she shouted, and her voice broke, in rage, I thought. I was absolutely miserable, but I hadn't gone too far when I began to realize that I couldn't leave her alone there without protection, to hunt her own food amid the dangers of that savage world. She might hate me, and revile me, and heap indignity after indignity upon me, as she already had, until I should have hated her. But the pitiful fact remained that I loved her, and I couldn't leave her there alone. The more I thought about it, the madder I got, so that by the time I reached the valley I was furious, and the result of it was that I turned right around and went up that cliff again as fast as I had come down. I saw that Dean had left the ledge and gone within the cave, but I bolted right in after her. She was lying upon her face on the pile of grasses I had gathered for her bed. When she heard me enter, she sprang to her feet like a tigress. "'I hate you!' she cried. Coming from the brilliant light of the noonday sun into the semi-darkness of the cave, I could not see her features, and I was rather glad, for I disliked to think of the hate that I should have read there. I never said a word to her at first. I just strode across the cave and grasped her by the wrists, and when she struggled, I put my arm around her so as to pinion her hands to her sides. She fought like a tigress, but I took my free hand and pushed her head back. I imagined that I had suddenly turned brute, that I had gone back a thousand million years and was again a veritable caveman taking my mate by force. And then I kissed that beautiful mouth again and again. Dean, I cried, shaking her roughly, I love you. Can't you understand that I love you? That I love you better than all else in this world or my own? That I am going to have you? That love like mine cannot be denied? I noticed that she lay very still in my arms now, and as my eyes became accustomed to the light I saw that she was smiling, a very contented, happy smile. I was thunderstruck. Then I realized that, very gently, she was trying to disengage her arms, and I loosened my grip upon them so that she could do so. Slowly they came up and stole about my neck, and then she drew my lips down to hers once more and held them there for a long time. At last she spoke. "'Why didn't you do this at first, David? I have been waiting so long.' "'What?' I cried. "'You said that you hated me!' Did you expect me to run into your arms and say that I loved you before I knew that you loved me?" she asked. "'But I have told you right along that I love you,' I said. "'Love speaks in acts,' she replied. "'You could have made your mouth say what you wished it to say, but just now, when you came and took me in your arms, your heart spoke to mine in the language that a woman's heart understands. What a silly man you are, David!' "'Then you haven't hated me at all, Dean?' I asked. "'I have loved you always,' she whispered, "'from the first moment that I saw you, "'although I did not know it until that time you struck down Hooja the Sly One "'and then spurned me.' "'But I didn't spurn you, dear,' I cried. "'I didn't know your ways. I doubt if I do now. "'It seems incredible that you could have reviled me so, "'and yet have cared for me all the time.' You might have known, she said, when I did not run away from you, that it was not hate which chained me to you. While you were battling with Jubal, 
I could have run to the edge of the forest, and when I learned the outcome of the combat it would have been a simple thing to have eluded you and returned to my own people." "'But Jubal's brothers and cousins,' I reminded her. "'How about them?' She smiled and hid her face on my shoulder. "'I had to tell you something, David,' she whispered. "'I must needs have some excuse for remaining near you.' "'You little sinner!' I exclaimed. "'And you have caused me all this anguish for nothing!' "'I have suffered even more,' she answered simply. "'For I thought that you did not love me, and I was helpless. I couldn't come to you and demand that my love be returned, as you have just come to me. Just now, when you went away, hope went with you. I was wretched, terrified, miserable, and my heart was breaking. I wept, and I have not done that before since my mother died. And now I saw that there was the moisture of tears about her eyes. It was near to making me cry myself when I thought of all that poor child had been through, motherless and unprotected, hunted across a savage, primeval world by that hideous brute of a man, exposed to the attacks of the countless fearsome denizens of its mountains, its plains, and its jungles. It was a miracle that she had survived it all. To me it was a revelation of the things my early forebears must have endured that the human race of the outer crust might survive. It made me very proud to think that I had won the love of such a woman. Of course she couldn't read or write. There was nothing cultured or refined about her as you judge culture and refinement. But she was the essence of all that is best in woman, for she was good and brave and noble and virtuous. And she was all these things in spite of the fact that their observance entailed suffering and danger and possible death. How much easier it would have been to have gone to Jubal in the first place! She would have been his lawful mate, she would have been queen in her own land, and it meant just as much to the cave-woman to be a queen in the Stone Age as it does to the woman of today to be a queen now. It's all comparative glory any way you look at it, and if there were only half-naked savages on the outer crust today you'd find that it would be considerable glory to be the wife of a Dahomey chief. I couldn't help but compare Dean's action with that of a splendid young woman I had known in New York. I mean splendid to look at and to talk to. She had been head over heels in love with a chum of mine, a clean, manly chap. But she had married a broken-down, disreputable old debauchee because he was a count in some dinky little European principality that was not even accorded a distinctive color by Rand McNally. Yes, I was mighty proud of Dean. After a time we decided to set out for Sari, as I was anxious to see Perry and to know that all was right with him. I had told Dean about our plan of emancipating the human race of Pellucidar, and she was fairly wild over it. She said that if Dakor, her brother, would only return he could easily be King of Amaz, and that then he and Gak could form an alliance. That would give us a flying start, for the Sarians and the Amazites were both powerful tribes. Once they had been armed with swords and bows and arrows and trained in their use, we were confident that they could overcome any tribe that seemed disinclined to join the great army of federated states with which we were planning to march upon the Mahars. I explained the various destructive engines of war which Perry and I could construct after a little experimentation—gunpowder, rifles, cannon, and the like and Dean would clap her hands and throw her arms about my neck and tell me what a wonderful thing I was, 
She was beginning to think that I was omnipotent, although I really hadn't done anything but talk. But that is the way with women when they love. Perry used to say that if a fellow was one-tenth as remarkable as his wife or mother thought him, he would have the world by the tail with a downhill drag. The first time we started for Sari I stepped into a nest of poisonous vipers before we reached the valley. A little fellow stung me on the ankle, and Dean made me come back to the cave. She said that I mustn't exercise, or it might prove fatal. If it had been a full-grown snake that struck me, she said, I wouldn't have moved a single pace from the nest. I'd have died in my tracks, so virulent is the poison. As it was, I must have been laid up for quite a while, though Dean's poultices of herbs and leaves finally reduced the swelling and drew out the poison. The episode proved most fortunate, however, as it gave me an idea which added a thousandfold to the value of my arrows as missiles of offense and defense. As soon as I was able to be about again I sought out some adult vipers of the species which had stung me, and having killed them, I extracted their virus, smearing it upon the tips of several arrows. Later I shot a hyenodon with one of these, and though my arrow inflicted but a superficial flesh wound, the beast crumpled in death almost immediately after he was hit. We now set out once more for the land of the Sarians and it was with feelings of sincere regret that we bade good-bye to our beautiful Garden of Eden, in the comparative peace and harmony of which we had lived the happiest moments of our lives. How long we had been there I did not know, for, as I have told you, time had ceased to exist for me beneath the eternal noonday sun. It may have been an hour or a month of earthly time. I do not know. End of chapter 14《Chapter Fifteen of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. — At the Earth's Core Chapter Fifteen Back to Earth We crossed the river and passed through the mountains beyond, and finally we came out upon a great level plain which stretched away as far as the eye could reach. I cannot tell you in what direction it stretched, even if you would care to know for all the while that I was within Pellucidar I never discovered any but local methods of indicating direction. There is no north, no south, no east, no west. Up is about the only direction which is well defined, and that, of course, is down to you of the outer crust. Since the sun neither rises nor sets, there is no method of indicating direction beyond visible objects such as high mountains, forests, lakes, and seas. The plain which lies beyond the white cliffs which flank the Darrell As, upon the shore nearest the mountains of the clouds, is about as near to any direction as any Pellucidarian can come. If you happen not to have heard of the Darrell As, or the white cliffs, or the mountains of the clouds, you feel that there is something lacking, and long for the good old understandable northeast and southwest of the outer world. We had barely entered the great plain when we discovered two enormous animals approaching us from a great distance. So far were they that we could not distinguish what manner of beasts they might be, but as they came closer I saw that they were enormous quadrupeds, eighty or a hundred feet long, with tiny heads perched at the top of very long necks. Their heads must have been quite forty feet from the ground. 
The beasts moved very slowly, that is, their action was slow, but their strides covered such a great distance that in reality they traveled considerably faster than a man walks. As they drew still nearer, we discovered that upon the back of each sat a human being. Then Dian knew what they were, though she never before had seen one. "'They are Lydies, from the land of the Thorians,' she cried. "'Thoria lies at the outer verge of the land of awful shadow. The Thorians alone of all the races of Pellucidar ride the Lydi, for nowhere else than beside the dark country are they found.' "'What is the land of awful shadow?' I asked. "'It is the land which lies beneath the dead world,' replied Dian. "'The dead world which hangs forever between the sun and Pellucidar above the land of awful shadow. It is the dead world which makes the great shadow upon this portion of Pellucidar.' I did not fully understand what she meant, nor am I sure that I do yet for I have never been to that part of Pellucidar from which the dead world is visible. But Perry says that it is the moon of Pellucidar, a tiny planet within a planet, and that it revolves around the Earth's axis coincidentally with the Earth, and thus is always above the same spot within Pellucidar. I remember that Perry was very much excited when I told him about this dead world for he seemed to think that it explained the hitherto inexplicable phenomena of nutation and the procession of the equinoxes. When the two upon the Lydies had come quite close to us, we saw that one was a man and the other a woman. The former had held up his two hands, palms toward us, in sign of peace, and I had answered him in kind, when he suddenly gave a cry of astonishment and pleasure, and slipping from his enormous mount, ran forward toward Dian throwing his arms about her. In an instant I was white with jealousy, but only for an instant, since Dean quickly drew the man toward me, telling him that I was David, her mate. "'And this is my brother, Dakor, the strong one, David,' she said to me. It appeared that the woman was Dakor's mate. He had found none to his liking among the Sari, nor farther on until he had come to the land of the Thoria and there he had found and fought for this very lovely Thorian maiden whom he was bringing back to his own people. When they had heard our story and our plans they decided to accompany us to Sari, that Dakor and Gak might come to an agreement relative to an alliance, as Dakor was quite as enthusiastic about the proposed annihilation of the Mahars and Sagoths as either Dian or I. After a journey which was, for Pellucidar, quite uneventful, we came to the first of the Sarian villages which consists of between one and two hundred artificial caves, cut into the face of a great cliff. Here, to our immense delight, we found both Perry and Gak. The old man was quite overcome at sight of me, for he had long since given me up as dead. When I introduced Dian as my wife, he didn't quite know what to say, but he afterward remarked that, with the pick of two worlds, I could not have done better. Gak and Dakor reached a very amicable agreement, and it was at a council of the headmen of the various tribes of the Sari that the eventual form of government was tentatively agreed upon. Roughly, the various kingdoms were to remain virtually independent, but there was to be one great overlord or emperor. It was decided that I should be the first of the dynasty of the emperors of Pellucidar. We set about teaching the women how to make bows and arrows and poison pouches. The young men hunted the vipers which provided the virus, 
and it was they who mined the iron ore and fashioned the swords under Perry's direction. Rapidly the fever spread from one tribe to another, until representatives from nations so far distant that the Saurians had never even heard of them came in to take the oath of allegiance which we required, and to learn the art of making the new weapons and using them. We sent our young men out as instructors to every nation of the Federation, and the movement had reached colossal proportions before the Mahars discovered it. The first intimation they had was when three of their great slave caravans were annihilated in rapid succession. They could not comprehend that the lower orders had suddenly developed a power which rendered them really formidable. In one of the skirmishes with slave caravans some of our Sarians took a number of Sagoth prisoners, and among them were two who had been members of the guards within the building where we had been confined at Futra. They told us that the Mahars were frantic with rage when they discovered what had taken place in the cellars of the buildings. The Sagoths knew that something very terrible had befallen their masters, but the Mahars had been most careful to see that no inkling of the true nature of their vital affliction reached beyond their own race. How long it would take for the race to become extinct it was impossible even to guess, but that this must eventually happen seemed inevitable. The Mahars had offered fabulous rewards for the capture of any one of us alive, and at the same time had threatened to inflict the direst punishment upon whomever should harm us. The Sagoths could not understand these seemingly paradoxical instructions, though their purpose was quite evident to me. The Mahars wanted the great secret, and they knew that we alone could deliver it to them. Perry's experiments in the manufacture of gunpowder and the fashioning of rifles had not progressed as rapidly as we had hoped. There was a whole lot about these two arts which Perry didn't know. We were both assured that the solution of these problems would advance the cause of civilization within Pellucidar thousands of years at a single stroke. Then there were various other arts and sciences which we wished to introduce, but our combined knowledge of them did not embrace the mechanical details which alone could render them of commercial or practical value. "'David,' said Perry, immediately after his latest failure to produce gunpowder that would even burn, "'one of us must return to the outer world and bring back the information we lack. Here we have all the labor and materials for reproducing anything that ever has been produced above. What we lack is knowledge. Let us go back and get that knowledge in the shape of books. Then this world will indeed be at our feet.' and so it was decided that I should return in the prospector, which still lay upon the edge of the forest at the point where we had first penetrated to the surface of the inner world. Dean would not listen to any arrangement for my going which did not include her, and I was not sorry that she wished to accompany me, for I wanted her to see my world and I wanted my world to see her. With a large force of men we marched to the great iron mole which Perry soon had hoisted into position with its nose pointed back toward the outer crust. We went over all the machinery carefully. He replenished the air tanks and manufactured oil for the engine. At last everything was ready, and we were about to set out when our pickets, a long thin line of which had surrounded our camp at all times, reported that a great body of what appeared to be Sagoths and Mahars were approaching from the direction of Futra. Dian and I were ready to embark. 
but I was anxious to witness the first clash between two fair-sized armies of the opposing races of Pellucidar. I realized that this was to mark the historic beginnings of a mighty struggle for possession of a world, and as the first emperor of Pellucidar I felt that it was not alone my duty but my right to be in the thick of that momentous struggle. As the opposing army approached, we saw that there were many Mahars with the Sagoth troops, an indication of the vast importance which the dominant race placed upon the outcome of this campaign, for it was not customary with them to take active part in the sorties which their creatures made for slaves, the only form of warfare which they waged upon the lower orders. Gak and Dakor were both with us, having come primarily to view the prospector. I placed Gak with some of his Sarians on the right of our battle-line. Dakor took the left while I commanded the center. Behind us I stationed a sufficient reserve under one of Gak's headmen. The Sagoths advanced steadily with menacing spears, and I let them come until they were within easy bowshot before I gave the word to fire. At the first volley of poison-tipped arrows the front ranks of the guerrilla men crumpled to the ground, but those behind charged over the prostrate forms of their comrades in a wild, mad rush to be upon us with their spears. A second volley stopped them for an instant, and then my reserve sprang through the openings in the firing line to engage them with sword and shield. The clumsy spears of the Sagoths were no match for the swords of the Sarian and Amozite, who turned the spear thrusts aside with their shields and leapt to close quarters with their lighter, handier weapons. Gak took his archers along the enemy's flank, and while the swordsmen engaged them in front, he poured volley after volley into their unprotected left. The Mahars did little real fighting, and were more in the way than otherwise, though occasionally one of them would fasten its powerful jaw upon the arm or leg of a Sarian. The battle did not last a great while, for when Dakor and I led our men in upon the Sagoth's right with naked swords, they were already so demoralized that they turned and fled before us. We pursued them for some time, taking many prisoners and recovering nearly a hundred slaves, among whom was Huja the Sly One. He told me that he had been captured while on his way to his own land, but that his life had been spared in hope that through him the Mahars would learn the whereabouts of their great secret. Gak and I were inclined to think that the Sly One had been guiding this expedition to the land of Sari where he had thought that the book might be found in Perry's possession. But we had no proof of this, and so we took him in and treated him as one of us, although none liked him. And how he rewarded my generosity you will presently learn. There were a number of Mahars among our prisoners, and so fearful were our own people of them that they would not approach them unless completely covered from the sight of the reptiles by a piece of skin. Even Dion shared the popular superstition regarding the evil effects of exposure to the eyes of angry Mahars. And though I laughed at her fears, I was willing enough to humor them if it would relieve her apprehension in any degree, and so she sat apart from the prospector, near which the Mahars had been chained, while Perry and I again inspected every portion of the mechanism. At last I took my place in the driving seat and called to one of the men without to fetch Dian. It happened that Huja stood quite close to the doorway of the prospector, so that it was he who, without my knowledge, went to bring her. 
but how he succeeded in accomplishing the fiendish thing he did, I cannot guess, unless there were others in the plot to aid him. Nor can I believe that, since all my people were loyal to me and would have made short work of Huja had he suggested the heartless scheme, even had he had time to acquaint another with it. It was all done so quickly that I may only believe that it was the result of sudden impulse, aided by a number of, to Huja, fortuitous circumstances occurring at precisely the right moment. All I know is that it was Huja who brought Dian to the prospector, still wrapped from head to toe in the skin of an enormous cave-lion, which covered her since the Mahar prisoners had been brought into camp. He deposited his burden in the seat beside me. I was all ready to get under way. The goodbyes had been said. Perry had grasped my hand in the last long farewell. I closed and barred the outer and inner doors, took my seat again at the driving mechanism and pulled the starting lever. As before, on that far-gone night that had witnessed our first trial of the iron monster, there was a frightful roaring beneath us. The giant frame trembled and vibrated. There was a rush of sound as the loose earth passed up through the hollow space between the inner and outer jackets to be deposited in our wake. Once more the thing was off. But on the instant of departure I was nearly thrown from my seat by the sudden lurching of the prospector. At first I did not realize what had happened, but presently it dawned upon me that just before entering the crust the towering body had fallen through its supporting scaffolding and that instead of entering the ground vertically we were plunging into it at a different angle. Where it would bring us out upon the upper crust I could not even conjecture. And then I turned to note the effect of this strange experience upon Dian. She still sat shrouded in the great skin. "'Come, come!' I cried, laughing. "'Come out of your shell! No Mahar eyes can reach you here!' I leaned over and snatched the lion's skin from her and then I shrank back upon my seat in utter horror. The thing beneath the skin was not Dian. It was a hideous Mahar. Instantly I realized the trick that Huja had played upon me, and the purpose of it. Rid of me, forever as he doubtless thought, Dian would be at his mercy. Frantically I tore at the steering-wheel in an effort to turn the prospector back toward Pellucidar but, as on that other occasion, I could not budge the thing a hair. It is needless to recount the horrors or the monotony of that journey. It varied but little from the former one which had brought us from the outer to the inner world. Because of the angle at which we had entered the ground the trip required nearly a day longer, and brought me out here upon the sand of the Sahara instead of in the United States as I had hoped. For months I have been waiting here for a white man to come. I dare not leave the prospector for fear I should never be able to find it again, the shifting sands of the desert would soon cover it, and then my only hope of returning to my Dian and her Pellucidar would be gone forever. That I ever shall see her again seems but remotely possible, for how may I know upon what part of Pellucidar my return journey may terminate? and how, without a north or south or an east or a west, may I hope ever to find my way across that vast world to the tiny spot where my lost love lies grieving for me. That is the story as David Innes told it to me in the goat-skin tent upon the rim of the great Sahara Desert. 
The next day he took me out to see the prospector. It was precisely as he had described it. So huge was it that it could have been brought to this inaccessible part of the world by no means of transportation that existed there. It could only have come in the way that David Innes said it came, up through the crust of the earth from the inner world of Pellucidar. I spent a week with him, and then, abandoned my lion-hunt, returned directly to the coast and hurried to London where I purchased a great quantity of stuff which he wished to take back to Pellucidar with him. There were books, rifles, revolvers, ammunition, cameras, chemicals, telephones, telegraph instruments, wire, tool, and more books, books upon every subject under the sun. He said he wanted a library with which he could reproduce the wonders of the twentieth century in the Stone Age, and if quantity counts for anything, I got it for him. I took the things back to Algeria myself, and accompanied them to the end of the railroad. But from here I was recalled to America upon important business. However, I was able to employ a very trustworthy man to take charge of the caravan, the same guide, in fact, who had accompanied me on the previous trip into the Sahara, and after writing a long letter to Innes in which I gave him my American address, I saw the expedition head south. Among the other things which I sent to Innes was over five hundred miles of double insulated wire of a very fine gauge. I had it packed on a special reel at his suggestion, as it was his idea that he could fasten one end here before he left, and by paying it out through the end of the prospector lay a telegraph line between the outer and inner worlds. In my letter I told him to be sure to mark the terminus of the line very plainly with a high cairn, in case I was not able to reach him before he set out, so that I might easily find and communicate with him should he be so fortunate as to reach Pellucidar. I received several letters from him after I returned to America. In fact, he took advantage of every northward-passing caravan to drop me word of some sort. His last letter was written the day before he intended to depart. Here it is. My dear friend, tomorrow I shall set out in quest of Pellucidar and Dian. That is, if the Arabs don't get me. They have been very nasty of late. I don't know the cause, but on two occasions they have threatened my life. One, more friendly than the rest, told me today that they intended attacking me tonight. It would be unfortunate should anything of that sort happen, now that I am so nearly ready to depart. However, maybe I will be as well off, for the nearer the hour approaches, the slenderer my chances for success appear. Here is the friendly Arab who is to take this letter north for me, so good-bye and God bless you for your kindness to me. The Arab tells me to hurry, for he sees a cloud of sand to the south. He thinks it is the party coming to murder me, and he doesn't want to be found with me. So good-bye again. Yours, David Innes. A year later found me at the end of the railroad once more, headed for the spot where I had left Innes. My first disappointment was when I discovered that my old guide had died within a few weeks of my return, nor could I find any member of my former party who could lead me to the same spot. For months I searched that scorching land, interviewing countless desert sheiks in the hope that at last I might find one who had heard of Innes and his wonderful iron mole. Constantly my eyes scanned the blinding waste of sand for the ricky cairn beneath which I was to find the wires leading to Pellucidar, 
but always I was unsuccessful. And always do these awful questions harass me when I think of David Innes and his strange adventures. Did the Arabs murder him after all, just on the eve of his departure? Or did he again turn the nose of his iron monster toward the inner world? Did he reach it, or lies he somewhere buried in the heart of the great crust? And if he did come again to Pellucidar, was it to break through into the bottom of one of her great island seas, or among some savage race, far, far from the land of his heart's desire? Does the answer lie somewhere upon the bosom of the broad Sahara, at the end of two tiny wires, hidden beneath a lost cairn? I wonder. The End of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs